You're listening to the Lucas Italy podcast with food, culture and history from the land of San Giovese and San Pietrini. I'm Luca Marchiori and today I'll be talking about how crushed garlic became one of the world's favourite pasta sauces. In the summer of 1987, there was a day which for me had three important firsts. I was spending the summer in Venice and I'd been invited to lunch at the house of my aunt, who I'd never met, who had two daughters, my cousins, and um, I'd never met them either. So meeting these cousins and my aunt was the first first. Now, they live right in the centre of Venice, uh, a few steps, literally a few steps from the piazza, um, Piazza San Marco. And I remember somebody had given me the address, which is quite useless because it's really difficult to find places by the address in Venice and also directions of how to get there from the Piazza San Marco and some landmarks uh, to help me find the place. So I finally found the address and it was almost literally halfway between the Piazza and the La Fenice Opera House, which was really appropriate because my aunt and both my cousins were um, involved in music, in classical music. My aunt had been a teacher and um, my cousins, one of them was a orchestral conductor and the other one an opera singer. So I rang the bell and suddenly from above my head, I heard somebody shout, Kie, who is it? And I looked up to see a young lady with long blonde hair and a white dress looking out the window, looking like Juliet um, on her balcony. And um, I said, I'm Luca. And she buzzed me in. And I remember the building, which looked like just a wall with windows and shops, had this fantastic internal courtyard with steps that went all the way up to the third floor, which is where my aunt's apartment was. So I remember my aunt was very busy in the kitchen while my cousins took care of me. And um, when we came to eat, there was an amazing dish. It was a pasta dish, um, which had a sauce which appeared to have been made of green leaves, which were quite dark. And, um, and it was very aromatic and there were little pine nuts in it as well. And uh, the taste was quite, uh, quite sweet and it was absolutely delicious and I'd never had anything like it. Later when I called my mother and she asked me what we'd eaten, I described it to her and she said, oh, that's pesto. And so that was the second first of the day. It was the first time I'd tried pesto. And what was the third first? Well, My cousin, the opera singer, had to leave straight after lunch to go back to Verona, where she was singing in the famous arena, the famous ancient Roman amphitheatre, which is now an opera house. And basically, she insisted I went with her, and I stayed the night with her in Verona. And in the evening, while she was at work, she got me a ticket to see the opera in the Arena di Verona, which was an incredible experience. It was the first time I'd ever seen an opera. And the opera was Aida, which is one of the most impressive operas to see uh, for your first time. And it's an opera which is still very, very close to my heart. And every time I listen to it, I remember this day uh, of three firsts. So back in 1987, I don't think I was unusual in being a person who didn't know what pesto was and who'd never had it, because I think it was something which was quite rare and relatively unknown outside Northern Italy at the time. Whereas today, it's become probably one of the most recognisable Italian pasta dishes, probably one of the most recognisable Italian dishes, along with pizza, spaghetti al pomodoro, and all the other really famous Italian dishes. 
And in fact, today, you can go into any supermarket and find jars of green pesto, jars of red pesto, and jars of pesto with uh, with other things. And I've even seen it in the UK, certainly, used as a filling for sandwiches, pesto and cheese, for example. But I must say that this version in a jar doesn't really relate at all to the version I had way back when in my aunt's kitchen in Venice. Now, in Italy, the word pesto is used for a variety of different things. And so the the green one made of basil, which is the one which is famous outside Italy, is known as pesto genovese, um, pesto from Genoa. And indeed, it's in the city of Genoa or the province of Genoa and the larger region of Liguria that pesto has its origins. Now, I think through this podcast, we're beginning to discover that although many Italian dishes have very ancient origins, they weren't written down really um, until relatively recently. And so it's very difficult to trace the real history of these dishes. And many of them, of course, were written down in the mid to late 19th century, about the time of the Risorgimento and Italian unification, either because the people living in the different regions and the different cities and the different city-states that were about to become the unified Italy were afraid of losing their culture, or that there was a renewed vigour in a renewed pride in Italian food and culture because they were about to become a unified country. And so we find that the first written recipe for pesto genovese is from a cookbook called La Cuciniera Genovese um, from 1863. And it was written by somebody with an amazing name of Gio Batarato, and it was finished off posthumously by his son Giovanni. And although the recipe itself is recognisable as the pesto that we know and love today, rather like the original recipes for carbonara that we discovered a couple of weeks ago, there's a surprising ingredient. So Batarato's um, recipe calls for one clove of garlic, basil, no surprise there, parmigiano-reggiano and Dutch Gouda cheese. So this is the surprise ingredient, um, Gouda cheese from the Netherlands. And he says that this should be mixed in a pestle and mortar with pine nuts, and then olive oil should be added to make the consistency of the sauce. Um, he then says that it should be served either with lasagna or gnocchi. Now today, pesto in Liguria is mostly served with trofie, they're called. And these are like little two to three centimetre long bits of pasta, which have been rubbed along a board to make little thin strips and then twisted. But actually, the word trofie is relatively recent, and these used to be referred to as gnocchi. So in the 1863 recipe of Batarato, when he talks about gnocchi, he's talking about trofie. Now, the other surprising thing that he says in his recipe is that if basil is not available, you could use marjoram or parsley. Now, card-carrying members of the Ligurian branch of the Italians Mad at Food Brigade would throw up their hands in horror at the idea that you could make pesto with anything else than basil. But remember, 1863, basil wasn't available all year round like it is now, and it had a very limited season because they didn't even use greenhouses to grow it. And so, basically, there was a very limited season for pesto, a much wider season if you allowed marjoram or parsley. 
Now, if you take these ingredients and have a look at them, it's almost like a little potted history of Genoa and Liguria. And you can see why this dish has become a much-loved symbol of that part of Italy. Now, I don't know how much you know about Liguria, but Liguria is in the northwest of Italy, and it's really a tiny strip of land which seems to have been squeezed between mountains. This is the part of Italy where the Alps turn into the Apennines, and they sweep round um, and then go all the way down central Italy and the sea. And the most famous towns there are San Remo, which is famous for a big music festival which takes place in February every year and has its origins just after the Second World War, and in fact was the template and the, the inspiration for the Eurovision Song Contest. And the other most famous city, which is also the capoluogo of the region, is Genoa, or Genova in Italian. It's funny that there are several Italian towns which have a V in them in Italian, such as Genova, Padova, and Mantova, which in English don't have the V. Um, so Genova is Genoa in English, um, Padova is Padua in English, and Mantova is Mantua in English. And I've always wondered why, and I reckon it's because the V in ancient Roman times, but also then in medieval times and in the Renaissance, the V and the letter U were often interchangeable. And um, in Latin, it's considered that the V was actually pronounced like a U or a W. So I reckon that when, the, when English people were reading the names of these towns written down, they pronounced the V as if it was a, a U or as if it was a V in Latin. And so Genova became Genoa. Mantova, Mantua, and Padova, Padua. I don't know, it's my theory anyway. But the other most amazing thing about Liguria, and in fact one of its major tourist attractions, is a group of five villages known as the Cinque Terre. And these little villages seem to be suspended above the sea. The coast of Liguria is very similar to the coast round near Amalfi, the famous Amalfi coast. And in fact it's known as the Italian Riviera, and um, one could almost, it's very close to, and one could almost see it as an extension of the French Riviera, or you could see the French Riviera as an extension of the Italian Riviera, depending on your point of view. Anyway, the fact that um, Liguria is sandwiched between the mountains and the sea means that it's very protected from the weather coming from the north, and also being near the sea, it has quite a nice warm climate. And so the climate of Liguria is actually very pleasant, and it makes it a perfect place for growing olives. And in fact, one of the most important products from Genova are Tadjaske olives. These are named after the town of Tadja, which is near San Remo. Now, these Tadjaske olives you can buy often um, with or without the stones in oil, and they are fantastic for salads because they're, they're tiny little black olives, um, but they're very, very sweet and surprisingly fleshy for the size of olive. And these make a beautiful, light, sweet olive oil, which is used in making pesto. So this coupled with some local products, the basil and also the pine nuts, which are found all over Europe, and then with a foreign ingredient, the Gouda cheese, made up pesto. And in fact, the Gouda cheese is not surprising because it's a symbol of the fact that Genova 
was one of the most important trading cities in medieval Renaissance and early modern Italy. The name Liguria goes right back to Roman times. There was a tribe called the Ligures who lived in that part of Italy. And in fact, it became a region of Italy at the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus. It was actually region number nine with the name of Liguria. And in the Middle Ages, it broke into a number of city-states, which then became dominated by the city of Genova. And it turned into what was known as the Republic of Genova. And this became, like I said, one of the most important trading cities, one of the most important trading countries in Italy, and was a rival to Pisa and, of course, the most famous trading republic in Italy, that of Venice. And in fact, it's obvious that the Republic of Genova saw itself as a rival and an equal of the Republic of Venice. And in the 14th century, they even adopted the same system of government and decided that they would also have a doge. And the first doge was elected in 1339, and it was a man called Simone Boccanegra, which means Simon Blackmouth. And he had a very interesting career. He was deposed in 1345, but then came back as Doge again um, in 1356 and stayed there for the rest of his life until 1363. And uh, if you want to know more about Simone Boccanegra, Verdi wrote an opera about it. Not as popular as Aida, the opera I saw um, in Verona that evening, but nevertheless a very famous opera. And uh, like I say, it tells the story of this first doge of Genoa. And in fact, the Republic of Genoa became so famous for sailors and navigators that when in the 15th century, the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, wanted to try and find a western route to the Indies, it was to a Genoese navigator that they turned, um, a man called Cristoforo Colombo, um, famous to the world as Christopher Columbus. It's interesting when the little upstart kingdom of England wanted to get a piece of the action after Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas, it was to a Venetian sailor that the King of England, Henry VII, turned, and he turned to a man called John Cabot. But John Cabot, although he was a Venetian citizen, which you could get from living in Venice for 15 years at the time, he was actually not born in Venice. And there are two places which actually claim his birth. Um, one is the city of Gaeta in Lazio, and another one is a town which would have been in the Republic of Genoa. So maybe even John Cabot was really a Genoese and not a Venetian navigator. So this use of foreign Dutch cheese is a reminder of the fact that Genoa and Liguria was once a very important trading country. Now, the way in which Batarato writes about pesto in his book, you can see that it is an old recipe, a recipe that everybody would have been familiar with, and therefore one that does have probably medieval origins. And it's considered that it's actually based on aliata, um, a dish which would be made in medieval times, which consisted of crushed cloves of garlic, lots of garlic, um, with a little bit of basil thrown in. So it's likely over the years that this aliata developed into pesto genovese. So like many traditional recipes, pesto genovese has in recent years become codified, and there's now an official way of making it and an official recipe. And one of the things is you have to make it using a pestle and mortar. In fact, the word pesto 
um, derives from um, the word to crush in a pestle and mortar. Um, it's very similar to the English word pestle. And it's still traditionally made like this today, although many people making pesto at home in Italy will use a food processor. I've actually had an argument with some people in the past about this because like in Italy, there exists the Italians mad at food brigade. Outside Italy, there also exists this view um, or a group of people who have this very romantic view of Italy who feel that in Italy, obviously, people are living like they did 100, 200 years ago and that there are old ladies in farmhouses with pestles and mortars making pesto every day. And although this is true to an extent, um, actually, Italy is a very modern country. It's one of the most industrialized countries in the world. And most Italian people do have access to kitchen gadgets and use them just as much as people outside Italy. But one of the reasons that people don't use pestles and mortars anymore for making pesto at home is because it's quite difficult. And in fact, it's so difficult that there exists a world championship competition for making pesto with a pestle and mortar. And they have a fixed recipe that you have to use during the world championship. And it's worth having a look at that recipe because that gives you an idea of what people in Genova and Liguria would consider to be an authentic pesto. So the first thing you need is Genovese basil, um, basilico genovese, D-O-P. D-O-P, which in English would be P-D-O, is the European protection system for products. So the next ingredient is pine nuts. And then we have the cheese. And in fact, there are two different types of cheese used. None of them Dutch Gouda, I'm afraid, um, but both Italian cheeses. One of them is Parmigiano Reggiano, which we know all about from a previous episode. And the other one is Pecorino Sardo. This is sheep's milk cheese, which comes from the island of Sardinia. Then you have sea salt. And finally, extra virgin olive oil from the Ligurian Riviera. There's a DOP area of production from which this olive oil has to come. And although the competition organizers recognize that there are many different ways of making pesto, and actually every nonna and every family probably has their own recipe, they also suggest a method. And that method uses a marble mortar and a wooden pestle. And first, you crush together the garlic and the pine nuts until they achieve a creamy consistency. Then you add the salt and basil, and you have to crush the basil using a very light circular motion against the sides of the mortar until it exudes a bright green liquid. At this point, you mix in the cheese, and then, always pounding, you add your olive oil little by little until it reaches the consistency that you need. And it says that you're supposed to do all of this very, very quickly, as quickly as possible, to avoid that the basil oxidizes, um, because the basil can actually turn very, very dark, almost black. Now, if you've ever tried making pesto with a pestle and mortar, um, you will discover why there is a world championship for it, because it is very hard. And you'll also discover why many Italians, as I say, use a food processor if they're making pesto at home. So I think pesto began to appear certainly in the United Kingdom supermarkets in jars um, in the mid-1990s. And today, I think it's become, as I said, one of the most recognisable and most popular pasta sauces. And you can also find it in a red version, which is made with sun-dried tomatoes. 
And also there are regional variations on pesto. Um, there are two, particularly from Sicily, pesto siciliano and pesto trapanese, which are very, very different, but absolutely delicious things made with different kinds of nuts and different kinds of ingredients. Now, apart from being quite hard, it's also quite expensive to make proper um, pesto at home because basil is relatively expensive, but the most expensive ingredient are the pine nuts, which cost the earth. And in fact, if you look at ingredient lists on commercial pesto, the green stuff in jars, you will often find that there are a small number of pine nuts, which have been augmented with walnuts or other kinds of nuts. So that's all we've got time for today. Again, thank you very much for your continued support and reviews and feedback. I really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another slice of Italian food, culture and history. So all that remains is for me to wish you a very happy week. Ciao.